Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this day that we can gather here and worship you. We know that your Holy Spirit is dwelling among all of us, living in us, and also that your presence is here among you, your people. And today, as we listen from your word, may your presence be known to us, and may the spirit that dwells in all of us be speaking to us and convicting us and drawing us closer into a relationship with you and helping us grow into more the kind of people that live and follow Jesus. We ask this all in your son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So this spring marks 10 years since I've graduated from high school. So that dates me for all of you. I mean, probably most of you are thinking, oh, wow, only 10. <laughs> I mean, it feels like a long, I mean, that seems so strange to me that it's been that long already since I was a student at Adam Central. Uh, and now the school's so different, it's, it's not even really the same since I was there. In 10 years, it's changed that much. Um, but this means that this summer, my class is probably, I say probably because I know the person who's maybe supposed to be in charge and she's not that excited uh, to have our 10-year class reunion. So if this happens, it'll be my first opportunity because the five-year reunion was uh, the first year that Megan and I had moved to Denver, so we weren't able to go. Um, so if I do go, this will be some, the first time in 10 years that I've seen some of my classmates. Now, there's been people I've run into, like even last week I saw a couple guys. Um, but I have no uh, flowery thoughts about how this might be. My expectations are that it's going to be uncomfortable. Because that's how reunions are, right? They're awkward, but now just think about it for a minute. Why is it that, that some, it's so awkward to see people that you spent so much time with for 12, 13 years of your childhood. You might have spent more time with some of these people during that time frame than your family. So why is it that now, after you've been out of high school 5, 10, 20 years, that it's so uncomfortable when you go to these things? Well, I've been thinking about this a little bit, and I think it's because when, when we graduate, you know, we're 18 or 19 or 17, and then we leave, and we don't see these people anymore, but life doesn't stop. The time doesn't stop, the changing doesn't stop, even though we're not in contact with these people that we knew for so long when we were growing up. So now all of a sudden, we go to these reunions, and it's been five years. Maybe you've seen the person a couple times at Kroger or something. You don't talk. Uh, you maybe try to avoid eye contact, I don't know. <laughs> I try not to do that, but we've all been there. And now you're faced with the, the fact that you need to deal with the person who's across from you isn't the person you knew whenever you both left the gym after your graduation whenever you were 18. Now these people are different, they've grown, they've changed, they maybe have had families, they've had challenges, they've had tragedies. And these changes make these interactions awkward because you're like, I knew this person then, but they don't, they're not the same person, but they kind of look the same, and it's just awkward. So here's a question all of us consider. 
did Jesus have these sorts of experiences? Did Jesus ever have awkward reunions? Now, Jesus didn't go to high school like we think of high school, but there's one example that's in, the chap- in Luke chapter 4 where I think we see Jesus having one of these awkward reunions. So if you want to take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4, we're going to be starting in verse 14. Now that is page 892 in the Pew Bibles, so if you want to follow along. Luke chapter 4. So this is Jesus' little reunion awkward story. So this is how Luke begins the story in verse 14. He says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the countryside. So, chapter 4, verse 14, is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in the Gospel of Luke. It's the very first time where Luke says that Jesus starts to travel around and teach and do miracles and, and interact with people around the cities that he's traveling to. Now, there's something important that Luke tells us about Jesus going and doing his ministry. He tells us that he went in the power of the Spirit. Now, we've talked about the Holy Spirit the last two Sundays. And last week, we talked about how the Holy Spirit unites us and brings us together and gives us gifts to build one another up. So now, again, we talk about the Holy Spirit, and this time it's about Jesus' ministry. So I think the Holy Spirit's pretty important. And we're easily, it's easy for us to overlook the Holy Spirit, but we cannot. Again, I encourage you, consider how the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Consider how the Holy Spirit is working in our church. Consider how the Holy Spirit might be speaking to you. And not only was Jesus traveling around and teaching in synagogues, but he was gathering quite a reputation in 15 This is how Luke continues. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. So people are noticing Jesus. He's teaching in synagogues and people are showing up to listen. So this is how the public ministry of Jesus starts. He's traveling and teaching and gathering a following of people who at least want to hear what he has to say. Now, continuing to verse 16, Luke goes from these general statements and he says, okay, now I'm going to tell you a story about one of those times Jesus was teaching in a synagogue. And this is how he continues, verse 16, he says, He, Jesus, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. So now, Jesus travels to this town of Nazareth. Now, we learn a couple important things here. First, Luke says, Nazareth, where he was brought up. This is Jesus' hometown. It's on the Sabbath day, the day whenever the, the Jewish people gathered and did not work, and they worshiped God. And he went to the synagogue, so again, the gathering place of the Jewish people, where they would hear from the scriptures and they would hear teaching. So Jesus gathers... Now, we know that Nazareth, Nazareth, Nazareth was small and poor. We think there was only one synagogue, so there's only one gathering in the whole town. And we do not think that they had a dedicated building for that synagogue. So, like, we gather here at this church building every week, 
There wasn't a building for people to gather at. So in Nazareth on, on the Sabbath, people would gather somewhere outside. So Jesus is home, and remember, he's gathering a following. So people realize that he's home. So I imagine Jesus' experience was similar to my experience whenever I returned home from Denver. Not saying that people are lining up to hear me preach. That's not what I'm saying. I don't, I mean, I was not, I'm not well known like Jesus in the area. But it's interesting, I would be gone and come back and I would see people who I hadn't really seen and, and didn't tell what I was doing. But they would know, oh yeah, we heard you were in Denver or we heard you were in seminary. Or they might say, oh yeah, we heard you're at that church out there. So they know that I'm a pastor now. So people just know. In small towns, people hear and they know about you. So people knew Jesus was there. So they're showing up to hear what he has to say. So this is how the story continues. The end of verse 16. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. And this is what he says. This is what he reads to his family and friends in Nazareth. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus stands up in this synagogue to read from the prophet Isaiah. And what he does is read from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and Isaiah 58, verse 6. Now there's a reason why those aren't two consecutive passages. And we can talk about that later. There's reasons why we think that this is how it was presented and what Jesus did. But I'm not going to talk about that now. So if that really bugs you, talk to me after the service and I'll be happy to explain it. But Jesus reads from these two passages. Now what he is doing is he is calling together his fellow Jewish people. Because these two passages are very important for the Jewish identity. It's passages about what comes to be known as the suffering servant, the person sent by God to deliver his people. Now in the book of Isaiah, these ideas are developed and these ideas become the foundation of the Jewish idea of the Messiah. So Jesus stands up before his friends and family and he says, and he reads these passages that are the core of their identity as Jewish people. Much like as Americans, the core of our identity as Americans is freedom we want to be free to do what we want. We don't want the government to tell us what to do. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We're free to make our own decisions, right? That's foundational to our identity, for better or for worse. It's the way we think. We couldn't escape it if we wanted to. The Jewish people had part of their identity this idea that the Messiah was coming so that they could be free to worship God under their own leadership and under their own king, rather than being under the Roman Empire. So Jesus reads this passage that everyone's going to be associated with and they're going to have a lot of passionate feelings about. And then this is what he says in verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. 
The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him. So he rolls it up the, the, the scroll and hands it back to the attendant and he sits down. So sitting down is the same as when I stood up before all of you. So when I stand, this preach a sermon, it means you're at least supposed to pretend to listen. Maybe you're not listening. No one laughs, so maybe you're not listening. But when Jesus sat, he was spoke, it meant that he was going to teach. So people start to listen. And this is what he says. He began by saying, verse 21, to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So what did Jesus is actually doing? And we, we can't miss this, but it's easy to miss it. He's saying to his friends and family, what I just read to you, that passage we know is about that guy we're waiting for, that's fulfilled in me. I'm the one we're waiting for. That's what he says to his friends and family. What's interesting is that this, uh, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this story of Jesus teaching in Nazareth. But only Luke tells us the content of what Jesus preaches. Now, the reason he does this is because that message is foundational to the way that Luke tells the story of Jesus' coming. He wants us to know the reason that Jesus came is because he's the Messiah. And he came to proclaim good news to the poor. He came to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. He came to restore sight for the blind. He came to set the oppressed free. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came to reframe the way we see the world. And that's foundational to Luke's message about Jesus. So he includes this part of the story. Now that might make us a little bit uncomfortable to think that, well, maybe this is in there and it's not in other Gospels. But think about it. We do this all the time. Well, Megan tells me I'm actually really bad at this. She tells me I'm really bad at leaving out details that aren't important in stories. So I'll tell a story, and then I'll have to give you background information about something else. And then before we know it, we're talking about something else, and I'm like, wait a minute. I told you that so we could talk about this, and I have to bring it back. Good storytellers leave out details that aren't important for the story they're telling. Not because they're hiding those details, but because they don't benefit what they're trying to communicate. So for Luke, this was really important to what he was trying to communicate. For Matthew and Mark, it wasn't central to what they were trying to communicate, so they just left it out. Not because they were trying to hide it, because they were just saying, we're not going to include that. But Luke puts it in there because he wants us to see that Jesus came to reframe the way we see the world. Now, before we see how the Nazarene people face this reality, let's think about this for a little bit. Oftentimes, we think about how Jesus came for us. He came to set us free from our sins. He came so that we could go to heaven. That's how we talk about it. Now, I'm not trying to say that's wrong, but maybe we need to think about a little bigger picture than that. Jesus came to reframe the way we see the world. His purpose was to set free the people who no one wants to deal with in the world. He came for the people that the world doesn't value. He came for the people on the bottom. He came for the poor, 
the prisoners, the blind. He, proclaim, he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came to reframe the way we see the world. The message of Jesus Christ and the good news of the coming reign of the kingdom of God is that the value systems and power structures of the world are flipped upside down in God's kingdom. Now that's the, that's the overall message of Luke's gospel. Jesus came, the world wants us to live one way. They value certain things. They put certain people in positions of power. And Jesus is going to come and he's going to flip all of it on its head. Jesus came to reframe the way we see the world. Now the people in Nazareth actually were not upset by that message. Because that's what they wanted. Remember, they wanted Rome to be overturned. So this is how they respond, verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. So they received him well. And then they said, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. So we read that and we start to think, well, maybe they're questioning Jesus because they're like, well, we always knew this guy. But if we continue, this is what Jesus responds in saying in verse 23. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physicians, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what you have heard, what we have heard that you have done in Capernaum. So while we often hear this passage as a reason to say, well, prophets are rejected in their hometowns, people can't go preach at their home churches because no one wants to listen to them. It seems that the people of Nazareth actually received Jesus' message and they're excited. And they're, you know, like, they're you know, like, Jesus, heal your own people first. You're one of us. Heal us first. Do hear what we've heard you've done other places. We're your family and your friends. Don't we deserve that so much more than the people that you don't even know? Don't we deserve to have your blessings first? That's what they're saying to Jesus. And Jesus, knowing that this is in their heart, this is what he tells them in 24. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elisha was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zephatha. There you go, Ben, there's one I couldn't get. In the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. He not one of them was cleansed, only Nahum, the Syrian. So Jesus says, there's these other prophets in our history who did not do work for their own people. And because of that, they were rejected by their hometowns. Because God sent them to do work for people who weren't even part of the nation of Israel. Gentiles, people from the nations, received the blessing that the Jewish people should have received. And Jesus is telling, this is what he's telling his fellow Nazarene, his fellow family and friends. He's saying, you're going to reject me just like the prophets before were rejected. Because I didn't come just for you, and my message isn't just for you, and my gifts aren't just for you. You want them for yourselves, 
But Jesus says, maybe, just maybe, I came for other Jews, and maybe I came for people who weren't even Jews. And now, this is when the people of Nazareth are forced to make a decision. They're forced to have Jesus reframe the ways that they see the world and realize that maybe the Jewish Messiah came for people other than just themselves, but maybe the nations. And maybe Jesus is not going to just bless them, but he's going to bless all people. Or they can choose to reject Jesus and say, you know what, we're going to keep our old feelings about the Messiah. We're going to continue to believe what we've always believed. And even though you're claiming this, we're just going to reject your message. And now this is how they respond, verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. They were going to kill him. His own family and friends. They were so angry that he was challenging the way they viewed the world. That they could not accept it. Jesus came to reframe the way that we see the world. And we, just like the people from Nazareth before us, are forced to consider that maybe even the way that Jesus has always been presented to us and the way that the Christian faith has been talked about isn't quite what Jesus taught. I know that this was what I experienced when I was in college and somewhat in seminary. And when I was an an undergraduate at HU at Huntington University, it made me angry, very angry. And I uh, argued with people, and I was combative with my family, and it was a process for me. And now I've come on the other side of that response, and I want to always be the kind of person who is open to listen and potentially be challenged in what I believe if I believe what's being presented to me is the message of Jesus and the true intentions of what the Bible authors were writing. Jesus came to reframe the way we see the world. So my challenge to all of you as we're in this epiphany season, while we're learning about Jesus, while we're encountering him, I want you to be open to the idea that maybe... We need our image and understanding of our faith and of Jesus reframed a little bit. Because I think all of us have room for that in our lives. Or we can be like the people of Nazareth and and choose to reject Jesus. But where does that leave us? Jesus came to reframe the way we see the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we've heard the story of your son's encounter with his friends and family. May we be open to the guidance of your Holy Spirit that lives in us to direct us to the understanding of who you are and what you want us to know about you and yourself. May the words you've given us in Scripture come alive 
and become clear to us that we may live the way you've called us to live, that we may be become better followers of you and better images and disciples of Jesus. May we continue to pick away at our old understandings and may we continue to grow and to be transformed into the likeness of your son. We ask this all in your son's name, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.